Well, good morning, and would you join me in opening up a Bible to Matthew chapter 6, as we are this morning returning back to our sermon series that we began in January, uh, going through what is referred to as Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. It's a sermon recorded in Matthew 5 through 7. It's the longest, most um, uninterrupted account of Jesus' teaching that we have in the Bible. And so if you have begun um, attending Grace just in the last month or you began watching online in the past month during our four-week Easter series that we called um, Meals with Jesus, uh, you should know that our primary preaching rhythm here at Grace is to preach through uh, books of the Bible verse by verse or in the case of the Sermon on the Mount through uh, large sections of a single book of the Bible verse by verse. And uh, occasionally we will pause and do a topical series for various reasons like we did for Easter, uh, but it is our conviction, it's been our conviction for uh, many years now that going through books of the Bible, starting at verse 1, chapter 1, and going through uh, helps to see each passage in context. It helps to build up our community of faith with the whole counsel of God, and maybe above all, it helps to uh, prevent me from being the one who sits in my office and picks and chooses different passages that you know, where I think I need, we need to hear this passage based upon what I think. Um, and that we can avoid that by, again, praying that God would lead us to a book or, in, again, in case here, a large section of the Bible and just walk through it together. And so uh, I'm excited to dive back in and we are uh, picking things up. We are in chapter six. And so if I had to kind of sum up as a way of reminder, or, or again, if you were newer in joining us, uh, if I had to sum up the Sermon on the Mount, I would use three words. Character, mission, practice. Matthew 5, 3 through 12, where it begins, provides the kind of character of those who are in the kingdom of God or, or, or the kingdom of heaven, as Matthew calls it. Uh, we often refer to those as the Beatitudes, the kind of character that people have. And then verses 13 to 16 provide the mission or call to those within the kingdom. What's the mission that we are called to? And there we see it's to be salt and light in the world, to preserve and illuminate God's purposes in the world as the people of God for the glory of God. And then from verse 17 back in chapter 5 all the way to the end of chapter 7, provide the practices that Jesus is unpacking on how the church is to be salt and light. So here's the kind of people in the kingdom, here's the mission for the people in the kingdom, and then here's how those practices can play out in our lives. And so um, where we are going to be picking up this morning in chapter 6 is at one of, if not the most well-known passage in the entire Sermon on the Mount, and that we're going to be digging into the Lord's Prayer this morning. And I realize this might not be true for everybody, but I would say the vast majority are at least familiar with the Lord's Prayer. And that you really don't even need a church background to be exposed to it more often than you think. And that I think the Lord's Prayer is one of two passages in the Bible, the, the other being Psalm 23, that have a uh, kind of cultural place in our society. You, you hear it referenced in movies or in songs. It's often associated, Lord's Prayer at least, with um, sports teams or traditions, both Christian and secular. And so it's a very familiar passage 
And yet, I don't want to just kind of breeze through this passage because we all know it, and let's just get past it and go to things that maybe we don't think we know as well. Um, but also, I need to realize that I can't say everything there is to say about prayer in a single sermon. And if I tried, it'd be unhelpful. So here's how we're going to approach it. We're going to spend two weeks on the Lord's Prayer. Even then, we'll be able to say everything there is to say about prayer, but it will, I think, provide us the time to kind of dig into a familiar passage that often gets recited by people without really being thought through by people. So to kind of set us up before we read the passage, um, again, just as a way of reminder, um, uh, we began chapter 6 last month. And at the beginning of chapter 6, there was a noticeable shift in Jesus' teaching in that he goes to begin to give warnings or cautions related to the Christian life. And if you remember, he began with warning against hypocrisy. Hypocrisy. Hypocrisy amongst professing religious people. One of, if not the reason, why in our culture today, more and more people seem to be uh, declaring themselves uh, not affiliated with the Christian church. And the number one reason they'll give is the hypocrisy of people who claim him. But Jesus kind of in this passage really reveals how deceptive the human heart can be. Because if you remember, he said the first thing he warned against was the hypocrisy of craving the praise of others. And what happens is, is, is you begin to grow in Christ and live a righteous life. Um, people begin to praise you for it. It's not a bad thing. We, uh, God has wired us to need to be encouraged and affirmed. And as we grow in righteousness, people are going to notice that. But he said, be careful. Because once you start to experience praise for righteous behavior, then praise becomes the reason for righteous behavior. If I can outwardly appear righteous, I can inwardly feed a sinful desire to get all the glory. And so he talked about giving. He talked about the fact that we often will like being seen as generous more than actually being generous. And then he talked about prayer, that oftentimes the Pharisees cared about being seen as devout prayer warriors more than actually caring about being prayer warriors. And in doing so, again, they expose that they prefer their own glory over God's glory and for the good of others. So that's where we left off. But now he's going to continue his teaching on prayer. And he sees this as an opportunity to teach his disciples how to pray. So it's going to be Matthew 6, verses 7 through 15. We will read through the whole Lord's Prayer. And then again, we'll take two weeks to unpack it. So can I ask everyone to stand as we read this passage together? You can follow along in your own Bible or on the screen and listen as I read. Verse 7. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. 
But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Amen. You may have a seat. There are two ways that prayer can go wrong. Number one, you have a desire to pray, but you don't know how to. And then second, you know how to pray, but have no desire to. And the brilliance of Jesus' teaching here is that when it is rightfully understood, it provides both the pattern for and the right desire to pray. And that those are the foundational building blocks of a healthy, vibrant prayer life, having the pattern and the desire. But notice, even before he starts teaching on the Lord's Prayer, he gave another warning. Did you notice that? That that launches him into this teaching. Um, In the first time he warned about prayer, he warned against the hypocrisy of the Jewish Pharisees and their prayers, how how they they just loved being um, seen and heard by others on their way to the temple. But now he warns against the, let's call it, ridiculousness of the Gentiles' prayers. Gentiles meaning non-Jews. And that during this time, the Greeks were known to, in their kind of philosophical, kind of like mind um, engaging dialogue, would pray to Roman gods and would just string together really impressively sounding phrases that just went on and on and on and on. It's like a long sermon, amen? Like it just won't stop. It just keeps going. And what would happen is these Gentiles would pray and they'd go on and on and they would say nothing. Reminded me of a scene at the end of the classically renowned movie, Billy Madison. This is probably the first and last time the movie Billy Madison ever gets into a sermon. Uh, Feel free to rebuke me after. But at the end of this movie, kind of a ridiculous movie, there's a big debate at the end between Adam Sandler's character, Billy Madison, and somebody else. And uh, Adam Sandler is asked to describe the impact of the Industrial Revolution on society. And he stands up and he gives this long-winded, seemingly inspirational answer with a story about a puppy that grew older. And after, everybody in the crowd goes wild and they're cheering and they're clapping and then things quiet down and the moderator says, Mr. Madison, what you just said is one of the most insanely idiotic things I've ever heard. At no point in that incoherent response did you come even close to anything that could be considered a rational thought. This is what the Gentiles' prayers were like. They would go on and on and on and sound impressive, but at the end of the day, say nothing. And so Jesus contrasts his teaching with that. He kind of clears the fog here with a stunningly short, simple and yet profound prayer with short, simple, profound phrases. So so here's how we're going to unpack the prayer over the next two weeks. Um, This morning, we're going to look at the address, our Father. And then there's six petitions. There's three upward towards God and his glory. And then there's three, what you might call inward for us. So this morning, we're going to cover the address and the three upward petitions And then next week, Pastor Joe will preach on the three inward petitions and then the closing word of the Lord's Prayer. So that's the game plan. 
Let's begin with the address, short, simple, profound. Our Father. You'll find in this whole prayer that no words are wasted. Each one is significant, and it starts here, two words, our Father. And that the first word of the Lord's Prayer, I think, is often the most neglected, but it tells us that prayer is not primarily meant to be an individual thing. Plural language, not my Father, our Father. And yet, isn't it true that when we so often think about prayer, we think about my prayer life, my prayer time, my quiet time. But prayer, as it's taught in the Bible, and more, um, you, you see both individual and corporate prayers um, in the Bible, but there's more corporate than individual. And that even when we are praying alone, as Jesus did, as we see other examples of people praying, and that's good and right, but even when you're praying alone, John Anwuchekwa, in his little book called Prayer, writes this, We certainly shouldn't try to impress others with our prayers, but we should always involve them in our prayers. Meaning that even when you're praying alone, I would encourage you to use corporate language. Our Father. Because it reminds you that even when, again, you're praying alone, you have others in mind. Because we are not individual Christians in this world. We are in a part of a family member. We are all family members. And so when we say our father, we're implying that if God is our father, then other believers, and I would say especially other believers in your local church, are your brothers and your sisters. And so by using corporate language, as Jesus teaches here in his pattern, we reject the tendency we all have in this world to just always think for ourselves or in a society that's very individualistic, that thinks just about me and, again, my things and my schedule and my time and my concerns, that praying something as simply as starting with our Father helps us to defend against that individualistic mindset. And then, if that's the most overlooked word in the prayer, I think the second word is the most important word in the prayer. Jesus teaches them to address God as Father. And in doing so, he immediately revolutionizes prayer for the disciples. And we need to realize that this does not hit us like it would have hit his disciples in the moment. Because again, we're familiar with the Lord's Prayer. We call God Father. We kind of know that. That's common language for us. So we don't maybe feel the gravity that they would have felt this when hearing it from Jesus. Because to call God Father was never practiced by Jews in the first century. In fact, if you were to go through the Old Testament, you would find that God is only called Father 14 times in the entire Old Testament. And every single one of those times, it's speaking in a distant context in that he's the father of the nation of Israel. There are no examples of Father being used as a personal expression by an individual in the Old Testament. So it's not uh, even a knock on the Jews that they didn't do this. They never saw this modeled or seen in Scripture. It was unheard of for the Jews to address Yahweh as Father until now, until Jesus came. And in all of the Gospels, when Jesus speaks of or addresses God, he uses the word Father. And now he teaches the disciples to do the same. In that every time we pray, 
every time we address God as Father in our praying, we are declaring the truth of the gospel every single time. Do you know why? Because there's only one way you can call God Father. And that is only because of the person and work of Jesus Christ on the cross and his victory over death and rising from the grave that we can receive this new life and that in his work we are adopted into the family of God. That now we are brothers and sisters in Christ. Jesus is our co-heir and God is our father. And so that's, a, I think, a big, just again, with it being so familiar in our culture, and um, I can't spend too much time on this, but there's kind of the question of, hey, can, can all people pray? Can all people pray to God? I think in a sense, yes, because everybody can cry out to God and the Spirit can quicken people to cry out to God. But those who call God Father is reserved for those who are in the family of God. And that we don't have access to God as a distant power and a, uh, a supernatural force and a genie that we need to find the right phrases to get his attention to listen to us but we can address him because of Jesus Christ as a personal father and so these first two words just starting there our father provide this kind of foundational awareness of all our prayers and reminding us who we are in him so as uh, Jill talked about in the men's class uh, that's starting this week that Pastor Joe will be leading, uh, I think it was last week when Joe gave a promotion on Sunday morning as well uh, about the kind of the doctrine of adoption, the idea of the fatherhood of God that begins this Wednesday. Joe mentioned a, um, how J.I. Packer, the late great theologian J.I. Packer, sees the doctrine of adoption as the most important doctrine in the Bible. And I want to read the full quote from Packer that Joe was referring to. It's from his book, Knowing God. I've recommended that about 314 times in five years. Uh, so here's 315. But here's a quote. It's going to be on the screen. I'm not good at reading slow, but I'm going to try and read this slow. I want us to take this in, what Packer says. Quote, If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity... Find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. For everything that Christ taught, everything that makes the New Testament new and better than the old, Everything that is distinctively Christian as opposed to Jewish is summed up in the knowledge of the fatherhood of God. Father is the Christian name for God. So just as an aside, for men, if you have not registered yet for the class on Wednesday, I would do so. It's going to be on Zoom. Even if you feel like I'm not going to make it all the six weeks, they will be recorded and sent out. So just get your name on that list. Register for that. You don't have to think about it. I'm just telling you, register for the class that begins on Wednesday. I think it will do more than you realize to not only stir your own affections for God, but to inform the role that God has you playing in this world but here is why I said earlier that in providing the pattern to pray, that's what Jesus is doing. He's not saying this is the exact word, word for word you need to say every time. He's providing a pattern, 
a structure for your prayer. But while doing that, he's also providing the desire and raising the motivation for us to actually pray. Here's where I need to be honest. I have always struggled to grow and maintain a vibrant prayer life. I find I desire to desire to pray sometimes more than I actually desire to pray. And all too often, I don't desire it enough to do it. And so there's a cycle that I find myself going through often that maybe you can resonate with. A a desire to desire it, and then a lack of doing it, and then guilt and shame for not doing it, and then looking for new tips and new tricks on how to do it better. Anyone else? And so I know anytime I see somebody write on prayer, an article, a book, or speak on prayer, I'm, I'm, I'm listening. But I'll tell you what I'm listening for. I'm listening sometimes in hopes that maybe this will unlock the mystery for me. Maybe this will include the tip or the trick that will make it easy. But prayer will never be easy. Martin Lloyd-Jones, a preacher in the 20th century in England, um, he, he said kind of these, um, these dual lines about prayer that I think are both true. One, he says, is nothing exposes the Christian life or the, the life of a Christian more than their private prayer life. But then secondly, he says that, quote, everything we do in the Christian life is easier than prayer. And in fact, I find it easier to study, prepare, write, and preach a sermon in front of hundreds of people than I do sometimes in praying alone. Could it be that the key to breaking our cycles of prayer drought is not found in practical tips? It's not just in the where, when, and how. Um, Although those aren't necessarily bad, and we should think through those things, but rather, is it possible that the key is to not even so much think about how to pray or to pray better, but to dwell all the more on God as Father. Is it possible that if we were to really dwell on this, take the time to think about this, that the God of the universe, who's created all things out of nothing for his glory, has invited me to, into a relationship with him through Christ, and that he desires to be my father, and not a father I need to impress in order for him to see us, not one I need to perform in front of so I can get his love or his care, but one that we can freely approach as Abba, Father. I wonder in my own heart if the more I understand that, think about that, the more I will delight in and get the most out of the opportunity to pray. Because I don't know about you, I've never had a time of prayer where I, where I came out of it and going, eh, that was kind of a waste of time. I've done a lot of other things where I said that was a waste of time. I've never prayed and said that was a waste of time. Think about the things that you'll regret in this world. Prayer will never be one of them. And after this address, our Father, the foundational awareness of everything that comes after it, he again gives these six petitions, three upward and three inward. And again, even the order of them says something, that when we pray, we don't immediately see prayer as a means for asking for things. We don't immediately see as what we want in prayer. Because if we do that, again, we're exposing that we often are for our own glory and good as our supreme desire. 
but rather we begin with God in our desire for his glory. So prayer does not neglect us asking for things, but it doesn't start there either. And so this morning, we're going to look at these three upward things, God-seeking, God-glorifying petitions that fuel his purposes and mission in the world, that provide a pattern for us, and I think along the line or along the way, it will raise our desire for it. Uh, Number one, hallowed be your name. My guess is that the only time you've heard or used the word hallowed is right here in this placement within the Lord's Prayer. But to hollow something is to set apart, to make it holy. Uh, Maybe one other time you've heard it uh, in context is in the idea of a physical location that we consider to be hallowed ground. Right, like the fields of Gettysburg or hallowed ground. Uh, Home plate at Yankee Stadium, not City Field, is hallowed (laughs) ground. Your favorite childhood ice cream place was hallowed ground. But here Jesus is calling us to hollow the name of God. And remember, this is a petition. We are asking for something. We are asking God to set apart his holy name, the holy name that we sang about this morning, that this is an expression of a burning desire to see God's name glorified. And recall that while this Lord's Prayer is often spoken by us in isolation from the text around it, Jesus is teaching about the practices of how to live as salt and light in this world. And so this is really um, a sermon on how God's people are to carry out their mission, and prayer is a part of that. And so my question is, even starting here, hallowed be your name, do you see prayer in this way? When you think about your life, and you're thinking about, am I salt and light in this world? Am I doing what God is calling me to do in this world? Where does praying for the glory of God's name to be shown in the dark world fit into that mission? I would venture to say that nothing you will do in this world will surpass the importance and impact of praying for this world and for God's holy name to be glorified in it. And then this prayer, again, hallowed be your name, is a fuel that leads to God-glorifying action in the world as God's people, right? So, so this past week, Christy referenced it a little bit in her prayer. But, I mean, unfortunately, it's becoming daily now, right? It's just kind of like tragic events. It's, it's, it's exhausting. Um, and, and there's acts of injustice and there's mass shootings. And you see this cycle whenever this happens. And it happens all over, but especially on social media, where you get a hashtag of pray for blank, right? Pray for a city. Pray for the family of And then you'll get a whole lot of people after that first wave saying, um, thoughts and prayers are useless. Thoughts and prayers are useless. Give me action. We don't need prayer. We need action. And in a certain sense, I, I agree. We need action. But any action will only be effective and God glorifying in that it was fueled by, guided by, and carried out through prayer. There's an organization that I think I've talked a little bit about before. It's called the AND Campaign, A-N-D, the AND Campaign. And the reason why it's called that is because their slogan is prayer and action. 
biblical conviction and justice. And that's saying that just prayer alone isn't sufficient, but prayerless action isn't sufficient either. Martin Luther rightfully says about this phrase in the Lord's Prayer that we hallow the name of the Lord when our life and our doctrine align. When we do what we say we believe. And so when we call upon God to hallow his holy name, we are saying that in this world, the world's deepest desire and need is to acknowledge and submit to the name of God above all names, for no other name will ever do. Number two, second, your kingdom come. So there is a, a natural progression to the pattern of the Lord's prayer. There's a reason why Jesus is ordering these things. And that if we dwell deeply upon God as Father, then it is our natural desire to see his name known in this world above all other names. And if we hallow his name in this way, it is, again, natural for us to desire his kingdom. And so this petition, your kingdom come, is primarily a prayer for the success of the spread of the gospel through the world. A success for the mission of God through his church in this world, the spread of the gospel. And that every time we pray, the petition above all our personal requests, while not unimportant, do not supersede the request to see God's purposes prevail in this world. The kingdom of God, it's a massive topic. It's a huge theme in Matthew's gospel especially. But I just want to share kind of a line on how the kingdom of God, this one line kind of speaks to the past, future, and then present in that order. So, so first, your kingdom come as past. This is the recognition that in a sense, God has already inaugurated, has already began his kingdom in this world through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Jesus' first line of public ministry following his baptism as recorded in Mark 1, was the time was fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. It's the past recognition to the arrival of the kingdom, and it's also future. And that there, this is the recognition that there is a decisive time in history, known only to the Father, where Jesus will return to consummate the kingdom. So in the past, he inaugurated the kingdom. In the future, he will consummate the kingdom, judge the world, and reign as king over the new heavens and the new earth. All right, so while death has been defeated on the cross, the power of sin has been defeated, the presence of evil still remains in the kingdom of the world. Satan is called the god of this world, and he still reigns. But he has no power over the people of God, and his power over the world is on the clock. Amen? He's on the clock. And there will be a day when the whole world will see and know the name of the Lord. All will bow. And it is our ultimate hope that history from day one is always headed somewhere. There's a pastor down in Washington, D.C. named Isaac Adams who has written the same post on Twitter every single day since last March. You know what he writes every morning? He says this, quote, Christian, we're one day closer to heaven. Another pastor down in Atlanta who I referenced before, John Anwuchekwa, 
likens this kind of future-minded petition of your kingdom come like a child whose father or mother promises their daughter that they're going to Disney World. That moment, say, hey, we're going to Disney World. And so from that moment on, if you've ever done this for your children, you know that uh, the child knows this is a matter of when, not if. And from that moment on, they will ask relentlessly, is it time yet? Are we going? When are we going? How many days? How many months? You promised. That is what it's like when we pray your kingdom come. We're telling the Lord, you promised. Come, Lord Jesus. Many of you know the second to last verse in your entire Bible, if you were to flip to the back cover. And Revelation 22 says this. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. But then in a third sense, this petition is for the present. Saying your kingdom come fuels and directs our mission in this world. It does so through both conversion and commitment. Saying your kingdom come is a commitment to both conversion and commitment. Jesus says the primary call to action for the coming of the kingdom is repentance. Remember, repent and believe in the gospel. And then upon conversion, we talked about this on Easter Sunday, we're not just beamed up to heaven, but now we join in the family of God. We are called to be salt and light. And so upon conversion, we commit. We commit to the mission of God right now to play our part to make disciples, to do mission-minded work, bringing to bear God's kingdom based in mercy and justice to a world all around us. So every time we say, your kingdom come, we find our place in this kingdom work. And then third petition, that, and the last one we'll cover for this morning. Your will be done. Commentator Kent Hughes says about this line, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He says that, quote, if people knew what they were praying, they would never say it so aimlessly. There is a gravity and even an intensity under the simple line, your will be done. And we see this intensity most clearly in Jesus himself. Do you remember? While praying in the garden the night before he was crucified, sweating drops of blood, saying, Father, take this cup from me. But alas, not my will, but yours be done. This line in four simple words calls upon the perfect purposes and the sovereign control of the Father to come to bear. And it's a prayer that we would align ourselves to God's will and not try and convince ourselves that we can bend him to ours. This prayer, when spoken, you know what it does? It delivers us from ourselves. Because our chief temptation day by day, let me personalize that, my chief temptation day by day is to choose my will over God's will in everyday decisions. 
And we often ask, you know, it's one of the most common questions I get is, is what is God's will for my life? And it's usually related to a life-shaping decision, right? Where do I work? Who should I marry? Where should I live? And if I'm honest, when I'm praying for God's will and a life-shaping decision, I'm often thinking, Lord, can you bless what I want for my will? Where will you lead me to where it's easiest, where I'm happiest, where I'm most successful? That's usually my will. And while it's not bad to ask and to seek wisdom as to, Lord, what is your will for me in this situation, because it's not always clear, in a sense, we can be freed by the fact that it is always God's will for all of our lives, no matter where we work, no matter who we marry, no matter where we live, his will for us is to look more like his son. And that, can, that is not contingent on one place, one person, one career. The will for all of us is to look more like Jesus. And by the power of the Holy Spirit within us, to walk as Jesus walked, to obey as he obeyed in glad submission, and then trust him with wherever that submission leads. But chances are it's not the easiest route or might be the most worldly successful, however you define it. But Pastor Joe was sharing with the staff um, some teaching in, over the last month during our staff meetings on, on, on Sabbath, on, on holy rest, um, saying that practicing Sabbath is essential for the believer even when, especially when, the state of your lives and the circumstances around it are anything but restful. And in this way, Sabbath connects with prayer, where we experience a restfulness, a peace, while praying, even when, especially when, the items on our prayer list are anything but restful. Prayer and praying says, I would rather be in the valley with God than on the mountaintop without him. This is the pattern of petition of the beginning of our prayers. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. And even this morning, I think I only just scratched the surface on all of those, but I hope we can plainly see the masterful teaching of Jesus, of giving us the desire to do it while he shows us the pattern for it. And again, the most important word being Father. And that we don't need to give God empty phrases to impress him. We don't need to go on and on and on in our prayers so that he might hear us. But it starts about and starts with remembering who you are. A child of the Most High God, our Father, that fuels security and wholeness. I want to close this morning with a story that I heard this past week while listening to a podcast. I, I shared this with some college students. I spoke to um, an university group this past Thursday. But I listened to a lot of podcasts from a wide spectrum of worldviews. And this one host of a podcast, he's 40 years old. I'm not sure if he's a believer, but he was asked on the podcast, what is the best piece of advice he's ever received in his life? And this man grew up in Louisiana. He's an African-American man. And he said, remember, he's 40. At age seven, he was admitted into a special program at school that was now going to basically put him primarily with all white kids. So again, this is 30 plus years ago in the Deep South. And at age seven, before his first day in this new program, 
His mom looked him in the eye and said, son, you are beautiful. You are more than enough. So be who you are and don't let anyone else tell you otherwise. She said, you might be told implicitly or even explicitly that certain features about you are not beautiful because they are different. But you are my son, and you're beautiful. This guy is at age 40, grown man, getting choked up, remembering what his mom told him 33 years prior. It moved me. Maybe it's because my son's six and a half, and I know he's turning seven this summer. But it reminded me of this, of church, when you wake up in the morning, remember who you are and who your eternal father is. And the opportunity we have to each day, according to the pattern of the Lord's prayer, with our father, that it's the God of the universe looking at you and saying, you are my child, and you're beautiful, and don't let anyone else tell you otherwise. Walk in that confidence and see how God grows you in your delight to speak with him in prayer, and then to live for him in this world. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for your word, Lord, how it is able to provide us very practical instruction coupled with spirit-fueled and inspired motivation. And so, Father, I pray for all of us as we come upon and dwell upon a very familiar passage, maybe a prayer we have said dozens, if not hundreds, if not thousands of times in our life. Lord, give us fresh eyes to see your hope for us in this prayer, your desire for us as your children, and fuel us, Lord, to live out the calling you have placed before us, Lord. And as we now even just sing about your will being done in our lives and preparing for the Lord's Supper. Lord, I pray you would continue to move in us and in our hearts. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen.